This past week uh, was an amazing week. We, I'm going to try to contain myself today. Uh, Willow Creek Church, which is uh, one of the larger churches in the country in Chicago, they put on every year a what's called a Global Leadership Summit. And then they, sac- they satellite that around the world, literally. And uh, so we take advantage of it here. Um, and so this summit, they bring together some of the leading business people of, of around the world. Uh, for example, the president of the Ritz-Carlton uh, company was there, and you learn about excellence, about leadership, about defining leadership. Uh, and so every year we take our staff. There are also pastors from around the world this year. Bill Hybels, of course, is the pastor there at Willow Creek. Brian Houston is the pastor of um, the Hillsong Church in Australia. Uh, Craig Grishel, uh, uh Life Church TV, just an amazing, amazing uh, man, all of these. So moving, convicting, charged, cried a lot, cried together with a staff, um, encouraged, uh, inspired. Yesterday, uh, we were doing some breakout groups with men, just had a rich time with six men out in the middle of nowhere uh, in Mayaka City. In a, sitting in a barn with pouring rain around us, uh, speaking honestly, it was just a rich time. And uh, so I, um, if I start crying or yelling or something this morning, it's only because I'm, I, uh, my tank has a lot in it and overflow. So you may be the victims of my week, just to let you know. I was thinking about this week uh, that this is worth a one-year mark. Uh, one year from today, the Summer Olympics will begin in Rio. And I don't know about you, but I love the Olympics. I tune in. I, 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 I watch a lot because I'm inspired at many levels. And the purpose of the leadership, the Global Leadership Summit that we attended this week is that, that Bill Hybels begins each year by saying that businessmen can learn from the church and the church can learn from businessmen about the excellence of leadership and when I look at the Olympics, I, I'm stirred by the effort that's put in with the, uh, on the part of these uh, athletes. I'm stirred by the, the selflessness of so many of them. They are, they are there for a transcendent cause. We could learn from, it, from them as a church. They, the level of effort and muscle for, the, for a status of excellence the competitive spirit that they have that's healthy, that says, man, we're, we're, in, we're in this race, we're in this activity, this event, because we're competing. We, we are competing today against an enemy that wants to rob the advancement of the kingdom of God. We're in a competitive mode to a certain degree as Christians. So I, I love to watch those, those uh, Olympics. And one of, the, one of the favorite things for me personally are the relay races, um, the, especially what they call the four by one, or the, the four racers, four runners, and they are running full blast at a hundred meters for a hundred meters. Each of them carry in their hands a baton, and that baton then is handed off to an awaiting runner. And today we're going to look at that event as it ties into our life as Christians. Because I think so many times we, our identity, we, we start pretty solid as Christians and then it gets altered and modified as we go along. So we have to recalibrate at times to remind ourselves of who we are. And I'll tell you why. We began this collection called Identity Theft just a couple of weeks ago. And the purpose behind it, the why behind this, this collection is that we have established that if we truly embrace our identity that God gives to us, then our feelings are set aside. And when our feelings are set aside and we embrace who God has really made us, then our actions will follow that. We began by looking at us collectively as a church in a culture in America where we are beginning to lose our voice. The voice of the church has has become quieter in, in the press, more negative in the press, then we can take on this identity like we're victims and we're, we're truly not. We're victors. We've, 
we know the end of the story and, the, and Christ told us that the, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church in its forward motion. And if you embrace yourself as a, as a victor, then you begin to act that way. But if you embrace an identity as a victim, you also act that way. You become, you recoil, you become more quiet and you, you're less active and you you advance much less. So God says, no, don't look at yourself. We saw many times in the Old Testament where the nation of Israel viewed themselves as a victim. And therefore, their actions followed that, that, that sense of identity. Last week, we looked at Moses, how he had committed a crime in his life, something that was that was so immoral to to culture and immoral to him and immoral to God. And he murdered a man and he then identified himself not just as a murderer, not just fractured, but he identified himself as damaged, as unqualified, unplugged, disassociated. Now from God, and so he intentionally took himself and he sequestered himself in the back wilderness and said, I'm out probably for the rest of his life. Had God not intervened and re-identified him and said, you're not unable, you're not disqualified, you're very qualified. In fact, the brokenness that you experienced in your life, I'm actually going to use that as a point of strength and not a point of weakness. But it took Moses looking in himself and embracing that identity that God was giving to him, saying, I am able. And then he was he was off in the races. We're going to revisit Moses today. And we're going to look at an identity that is that comes from a passage in Scripture that is quite well known if you if you're familiar with the Bible. It's in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Now, in the preceding chapter, we call this the Hall of Faith, kind of a playoff of Hall of Fame in chapter 11. What we see in that chapter is this long list of individuals that God has used. And I look at them truly as Olympians. They have sacrificed. They have been selfless. They have surrendered their lives to the cause of advancing God's kingdom in some very, very harsh ways. And, and so they get listed in, in that 11th chapter. And so when that chapter f- finishes, it naturally folds into these words found in the very first verse of chapter 12. Because of these people, then let us, our turn now, let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. Now, so many times when this passage comes up, what happens is that we we view the passage individually. And I believe that it is a very subtle erosion in the American church culture, particularly in the last 50 years, where we tend to personalize our faith. It's my God. It's my Bible. It's my rather than trying to elevate ourselves and seeing more of a collective picture that we're only one little pixel in a, in a larger painting. And so when we look at this verse, we can identify ourselves as runners, that we're on this race and sometimes we look at our life as the track. And from the time I become a Christian to the time I take my last breath, that that is my track. And that my whole life is, is identified as a runner and I'm going to run with perseverance, which seems to have good intentions. But when you stand back and you look at an overview of the scripture, what you find out, especially in light of the preceding chapter, is that none of those, those Olympians in chapter 11 got to finish the race. They only were able to run a small segment of the entire track. In other words, the race that was marked out for them was only a short stint of the track. So the, to the best of my ability, I created this graphic to try to, to describe this. And I have my son's nifty little laser pointer. So this represents the track. And if you fall asleep, by the way, I'll shine this right in your eyeballs. It's really painful. And, and so like every track, it's got a starting place. And then you go around the track and then you there's a finish. And so when we look at this passage again, so many people think, well, that that represents my life. I would propose to you that 
you might think differently about that. In other words, at the start over here, let's say this represents Adam. And God gave to Adam an amazing amount of authority over over the kingdom of, of God. And he said, now you're going to advance it. You're going to multiply it. And then let's just say this purple, this is maybe this is uh, Noah. Maybe that's the track that's, that was marked off for Noah. He wasn't going to be able to run the whole deal, but he was going to run there. Maybe here's Abraham and maybe there's Moses. That's that, that yellow one. Maybe here's Gideon and, and, and so forth. Maybe David's got a big one over here and whatnot. And you may say, well, I, you know, I don't know where we are. I don't know when the last day is. But if you come tonight at 6.30, I'll be announcing when the last day of life... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> People are visiting like, that's a little scary. Yeah, I told you, Alice, we shouldn't have come to this weird church. Okay, so, you know, we might be right here. By 11.30, we may be gone. We don't know that. Or it might be 2028. We, we don't know. Christ said you don't know, we won't know the day and the hour and whatnot. And so we might be here. Uh, for if you read the scriptures, we do feel... We do sense by the things that we're seeing that we're closer to the end than we are to the beginning. So let's just say, for example, like a mall map where it says you are here. Let's say, for example, you, you're right here. And I would, I would again propose to you that that is the race that is marked out for you to, for you to run faithfully in this, this very small segment that we call life. And if you're Willing to to realize that, which you really don't have a choice, because when you look at all those people in, the, in Hebrews 11, none of them are here. They were only temporary runners, that everyone who has served God has only done so temporarily. And it, it changes. Here's where the switch is. It changes you from being a runner to a carrier. Big difference. Big difference. You see, a carrier has in his or her hand a baton. And all of a sudden, the goals are quite different of a carrier than it is a runner. See, a runner has the finish line, the accolades in mind. A carrier says, I have one goal in my mind, to place this baton squarely in the hands of the one that will run in front of me. When Moses... Embrace the identity of being able. He then somewhere in a conversation with God early on understood that he would not cross the finish line, even a physical one. You might remember that God was leading the nation of Israel led by Moses into what was called the land of Canaan or the promised land. There was a point in time where God revealed to Moses, we won't get into the reasons because it opens up a whole new can of worms, we kind of have to unfold it, but that he was not going to be the one after all the pain and all the agony and all the brutality of leading people in a very desolate place, that he would not be the one to cross the finish line. So in that moment, he re-identified himself not as the marathon runner that would take the troops across the finish line, but he re-identified himself as a carrier. And because he identified himself as a carrier and because he embraced the identity of a a carrier, here it is. His motives changed and his actions changed. And he said, then I must find another carrier so I can hand this off. And it became the motive and the actions of his life. We're going to begin in Exodus chapter 24 today. And I'm going to very briskly move through the moments where Moses begins to prepare the runner in front of him. He begins to... to, um, set his mind in a different place. And it begins here in Exodus chapter 24 and verse 13. In Exodus chapter 24, verse 13, Moses set out with Joshua, his aid. Now, I'm a firm believer that God put everything in the Bible that he wanted to put. He wasn't just trying to make a big book and put a lot of words in like, oh, we got to make it bigger. I'll put Joshua's aid in here. At this point, 
He said, I'm going to begin to bring along someone who's an apprentice, an aide, a support. He wasn't on equal ground yet, but he said, I'm going to be very intentional about what I do. So he set out, out with Joshua's aid, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. Now you can be, see that at the, even the beginning stages here, Moses has an inkling that I need to bring somebody with me. Now, so many leaders, quite frankly, they fail at a very core requirement for leaders. It's called humility. Humility means that I'm not going to do it all my own. I'm not going to get the accolades. I'm not going to get all the trophy. I'm going to share that. He could have very well, like many leaders around the world, said, I'm going to go up to the mountain. It's the penthouse. It's the booth at the, of the stadium where it's really the cool seats. And I'm going to talk to God. And I actually don't want anyone to go with me. Because that's, you know, I'm Moses. I don't know if you saw that on the back of my jersey, but I get to go alone. When I think of this passage... The son of God could have had the same. He's, I'm going to go up the mountain and experience the glory of God. I don't want these this ragtag group with me. No, I want to bring you up with me because I realize even Christ that I'm a carrier here on earth. That my race is is sacredly temporary. And he became selfless. Now we go to Numbers chapter 27. We're going to move quite quickly here. We're going to move quite quickly, and, and this passage reveals the heart of Moses because in this book of Numbers, it was God who deemed Moses as the most humblest man on the planet. And I think when you see this passage, you're like, wow, he actually put that into action. Watch, Exodus, or Numbers chapter 27, beginning in verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go up this mountain in the Abiram range and see the land that I have given the Israelites. I want you to elevate yourself so that you can see the bigger picture. This is what I am. This is why I am speaking to you today. I will speak to you today with great challenge, with great, great, uh, great passion and great uh, definition because we must elevate ourselves, not just to see our little track, but to see something grander, to see something larger. And Moses was being elevated at that moment, saying, I want to show you, Moses, the whole track. And look, you remember how I told you that it's going to be incredible in the promised land, which is also a picture of heaven. It's going to be incredible. Look at the produce. I mean, it makes Whole Foods look like, you know, uh, uh, I don't know what it makes look like. bad. <laughs> It's incredible. And I want you to look at, you see it, Moses? You're not going. Like, was God just like doing cat and mouse? It's like, hey, look at this brochure. Look at the Bahamas, man. See, see the sandy shores and, and the hotel. Look at that pool. It's an amazing pool. Hey, you're not going to go. Like, who would do that? But God had a different motive. He said, I want you to see it. So you can get excited. So you can have enthusiasm that you can put the baton in another person's hand so that they can experience what I want them to experience. It's not all about you, Moses. So he, he said, look, see the land I've given to you. After you've seen it, you too will, you will die. You'll be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. Moses said to the Lord, I don't like it. That's not fair. I've put up with these people for 36 years. I'm going in. Not quite. I would have said that. That would have been the gospel according to Steve. This ain't right. He said, may the Lord, the God of the spirits of all mankind, appoint a carrier. His motive was so humble, so selfless. He was thinking transcendently. Yeah. He was an Olympian. Appoint a man over this community, God. To go out and come in before them. One who will lead them out and bring them in. So that the Lord's people. What a team player. Will not be like sheep without a shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses. 
This is no longer going to be a concept. You see, my fear, my greatest fear, because I speak to a lot of leaders in the church culture, my greatest fear in the church culture is that we lock into great concepts. The concept of discipleship is a popular concept. But he said, let me put a name on it. He said, don't, God didn't say, oh, then you need to be a carrier. Go, fare thee well. He said, no, let me put a name and a face. It's Joshua. You take Joshua. Discipleship is not a, just a concept. Discipleship is a reality with a person who should be in front of you in your lane who you're looking at and you're like, man, my goal is to give as a carrier the baton to that person. May I ask you, who is in your lane in front of you with his or hand, uh, his or her hand back right there waiting and you're running with all your might a name and a face. Does it come to mind? Moses, take Joshua, son of Nan, Nun. I never knew he was a son of a nun. That's weird. Okay. <laughs> a man in whose spirit and lay your hand on him. Now watch. He begins a strategy. This is why I'm saying it's not a concept. Here's what you're going to do, Moses. I'm going to have you stand before the leader. Have him stand. Have Joe. Uh, 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 Joshua before the leader, Eleazar the priest. And I want you to, to gather the entire assembly. And in their presence, I want you to acknowledge him, to commission him in their presence. And I want you to give him some of your authority so the whole Israelite community would obey him. In other words, don't just prep him in private, prep him in public. In our discussion yesterday as men, Someone said, yeah, Christ, he never posed. He never acted like something he wasn't. He had confidence. And when you think when he inaugurated his ministry on the very first leg of his race, he stood before the entire crowd and the father from heaven said to, to every, so everyone could hear, this is my son. I love him. I affirm him in front of all of you. Listen to him. He's got value even the good, good father understood the principle of handing off a baton. How, how profoundly and perfectly humble. When I read this passage, I'm reminded that so many leaders are so challenged with giving away their authority. The safest thing that we could do at 360 is have Bible studies and only staff teach them. That would be completely safe. I could monitor the content. I could monitor the way all things are done. But you see, discipleship is a huge risk. There's a hundred people in this room that, that have been empowered to discipleship. And we're saying, we give you the authority to go out and do the God, the job that God designed you to do. Not just the pros who get a paycheck, but all the people of the body of Christ, you too get to be empowered to be a carrier when we listen to the president of ritz carlton this week he said we empower our bellboys we give them a two thousand dollar allowance so that when they're in the hallway and in room 517 mr and mrs smith say man our tv is broken they don't have to go and ask can i give them something for a concession because they have been empowered with a two thousand uh, dollar uh, allowance where they can say mr and mrs smith i am so sorry that that has happened i would like for you to have dinner on me think about the risk that the president of ritz carlton took to empower those on the ground bellboys to have that kind of authority it just took my spirits to a height and say that it's the picture of the church that God wanted, that God's people, not the pros, should be out there carrying the baton of God. Does it make sense? You see the picture. This is the exact same picture that's happening. Now watch how the strategy unfolds. Deuteronomy chapter 3. Now we're getting to the end. This is the last book where Moses is living. I'm sure God said, hey, we're in Deuteronomy. Moses, wake up. This is the end. I'm sure he didn't. God tells Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 3 and verse 28. I want you to commission Joshua. I want you to encourage him and strengthen him. For he's the guy that's going to lead the people across. And will cause them to inherit the land 
that you will see. Yesterday in our breakout group, it was led by a young man who's in this church who's sitting to my left. And we made a distinguish, uh, a, a distinction between what typically can happen in a church of, uh, of what we call an accountability group, which just assumes you've done something wrong as soon as you walk in, because we're going to keep you in check and we're going to always check up on you. And, and that, that's not completely negative, but it's got to go beyond that. We not only keep one another accountable, but we affirm one another. The question that haunts every man is, do I have what it takes? Can I really get the job done? Am I able to do this? And because so many of our fathers never said that to us from a spiritual point of view or sometimes even from a human point of view, it's a question that fractures our heart. Can I really get it done? What, jo- what Moses is doing here is what, what many men don't receive in their life. Encourage him and strengthen him and enable him and affirm him in front of others. This is exactly what happened with Jesus Christ. So yesterday in our group of six men, I turned to this, this young man. I say, I'm proud of you. And I want everybody to know I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you for stepping up. I'm proud of you for taking tackling hard things. I'm proud of you for the change that you're making in your life. And then another guy, organically, we didn't plan it. He, he stepped up to the plate and said, yeah, over the last year, who you are right now is so different than who you are uh, a, a year ago. And I'm telling you, there was the power of carriers saying, we're looking at you in front of us in our lane and we're going to strengthen you and we're going to encourage you. Oh, that God's church would do it more. We would knock the world on their feet if we encouraged one another like that. Don't overlook the intention of Moses. It wasn't just random. It wasn't a sticky note. It wasn't a private email. He did it in front of the whole people. Now we're down close to the end. Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 3. The Lord your God... Now Moses speaking to all the people, the Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you. Look how selfless he's being. He's not even going to be a part of it. He's now encouraging the people. And you will take possession of their land. Joshua will also cross over ahead of you. There's no sniff of self. As the Lord said, then Moses summoned Joshua And said to him, what a moment, in the presence of the entire nation. And he looked him in his eyes and he said, you be strong, son. You be courageous, for you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their forefathers to give them. And you must divide it among them as their inheritance. What he is doing is not only instilling confidence in Joshua, but he's instilling confidence from the people to Joshua It was a plan. It was a strategy. It was something that he knew that he not only needed to encourage that man, but he needed to encourage the people to say, look, I want to tell you who I've got my eyes on. And it's not me. I've got it on someone else. And I'm encouraging you to be part of it. Man, the selflessness keeps coming over. Now, final verse in Deuteronomy chapter 34. We're at the end. Now watch this. Now Joshua, son of Nun was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had handed off the baton. There it is. In other words, because Moses embraced the identity of a carrier and had done his job with excellence and selflessness, because of that, because he laid his hands on him, So the Israelites listened to Joshua and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Mission accomplished. There it is. The handoff had been that runner. Moses, he's tracking, man. You know, with everything he's in, because you can't do this the entire track. That's why we're not running the whole track. Yesterday, part of our deal was we shot guns as first. First time I've ever shot a shotgun or a gun since I was 10 years old. My shoulder still hurts. I'm just being a really wimp, but it kind of hurts there, right? You know. But then we did this thing 
Was it 200 meters that we ran? Went both ways, round trip? 200 meters? 200 meters, so it's like a football field, right? Um, and, and then uh, a football field back. And so we were going to jump rope, and we were timing ourselves. And, you know, guys were always competing. So we are jump rope. We jumped 50 times. And those, you know, that were really good at it, there were a couple of people like, you know, they looked like... <laughs> <laughs> then it's our time. It's like... <laughs> which tired us out even more. And then we, we were told to sprint... 100 meters, pick up a bottle and sprint back, do 25 push-ups, sprint another football field and sprint back. And every single one of us, we, you know, we're jumping rope and then every single one was like, until we were out of sight. And then it went like, like that. I got to the end of the first 100 meters. No one could see me. 10 yards out, I'm like, I'm done. My car is only 20 feet away. <laughs> They'll never miss me. I never come back. You can only sprint so long. So when God says, I want you to love me with all your heart and all your might and all your force, He did that because you're a carrier, not a marathon runner. You get it? Now, yesterday I spoke to an athlete who had been involved in relay races. And I said, hey, I'm talking about relay races tomorrow. This athlete has set national records. And uh, so I, I said, hey, talk to me about what it was like to be a relay athlete, relay racer. And there were things that were brought up. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. I observed that. Here's one of the things that that was brought to my attention. When a relay racer practices, of course, they're practicing sprints. But the main place where they focus is they practice the handoff over and over and over and over. And this, this, my friends, is my greatest concern that we practice a lot as Christians with the run. Man, I got to pray more. I got to read more. I got to do this, but not enough practice on the handoff. You get it? Because in a relay race, it doesn't matter how fast the runner is. If they blow the handoff, it's over for the entire team, by the way. We have a lot of people that can run with knowledge, A lot of people that can run with giving. A lot of people that can run with prayer. A lot of people. But we must develop that transition of saying, man, i got to practice that. i got to practice. i got to practice. Oops, dropped it. got to practice. The other thing that I found fascinating about this, and it's something that we we know when you watch a relay race. But if I'm the waiting carrier, and I've got the second leg, and I've got my hand back like this, I don't wait until the baton is in my hand for me to start running. I start running before the runner gets to me. And this is where we get the phrase, you got to get up to speed. And what this athlete told me yesterday is that you have to develop a relationship enough with the runner who precedes you so that you understand internally the rhythm of their run and how fast they can get up to. And you're trying to make such a smooth handoff that you're running, you feel it, you feel it, and you're getting up to the same speed. So it's seamless. Fascinating. This is exactly what what Moses did. Way back in Exodus 24, he didn't wait to, oh man, my time's up. Hey, by the way, Here's a baton. He started Joshua in track in Exodus 24 and through Exodus and through Numbers and through the book of Deuteronomy so that by the time he reached to the end of his life, that boy was up to speed. Pooh! Seamless. How do I know? When we get to the next book, it's called the book of Joshua. It begins with the death of 
of Moses. Then the book of Joshua is all about the conquest of the promised land. Then what's followed by the book of Judges, which begins in the very first verse with the death of Joshua. Now the contrast here is fascinating. Fascinating. Watch what happens on the first verse of the book of Joshua. The definition the seamlessness of what happens. Watch. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 1. After the death of Moses, it begins with Moses' death. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid. He's reminding us again. Don't forget, this was the apprentice who is now going to become the leader. I find God brilliant. Brilliant. Exodus 24. But there it is again. He did not have to put it in there. But he's reminding us, don't forget, you need an apprentice in your lane. So God said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then you... And all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land that I'm about to give to them and to the Israelites. May I say to you when I observe this verse that the results of a strategy are always tangible. The results of a strategy are always tangible, measurable, touchable. The results of random are hard to see. We have left mentorship, discipleship as a concept, and we hope that it will just happen randomly. That's why we don't see such tangible results. The thing that absolutely in, just in, uh, that fuels my heart in this church is that we're seeing extraordinary tangible results Because our discipleship track is not like, hey, y'all, get together. It is a track with real things to do and real assignments and a real map and real goals and real measurables. And we bring those measurables in with real affirmation. It's a plan to get that runner up to speed. I have been discipling a man in this church, a young man in this church For two years and we're ready to cross the line. We're already talking about who he's going to disciple. Man, he is running as fast as I can. And the joy is off the chart. There is a joy that comes with tangible results. Isn't there? You paint a fence. You look at it at the end like, hey, that's cool. It's not the concept of painting a fence. The fence is painted. It looks great. And when you have a strategy like Moses did with Joshua, then you think, oh, that's cool. Here's another one. Did you notice that the mission was uninterrupted even with the death of a major player? That's because of all the the preparation that went into that. And as a result, are you ready? Battles, major battles were won. Now, many people have picked up on this Moses-Joshua relationship. In fact, there's a major ministry in, in the U.S. called the Joshua Project about, you know, discipling and, and making disciples, etc. But I would propose to you today that there is also a Joshua problem. There's always a problem, isn't there? That tension makes for a good story. Here it is. Fascinating. You can read and study on your own. Joshua chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 8, 18. Pick a chapter. Here's what you will not find in the book of Joshua. You will not find in the book of Joshua, Joshua doing for any other man what Moses did for him. You will not find that Joshua made a disciple. And for that reason, all you know what broke loose when he died. Watch. 
Judges, the, the book that follows Joshua, ends with a death, just like Joshua ended with the death of Moses. The book of Joshua ended with the book, death of Moses. Now, in the book of Judges, in the very first verse, it begins exactly the same except different names. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord. Now, in the book of Joshua, it began with a statement, definitive. You, Joshua, will now lead this nation. The book of Judges at the death of Joshua begins with a question because no one had been prepared. After the death of Joshua, the Israel asked the Lord, who's going to be at the front of the line? Who will go up first and fight for us against our enemies, the Canaanites? We don't even know what's going on. We're unprepared. The mission is interrupted. There's not tangible results. Who shall we turn to? This is a picture of what we are experiencing in America at times. Who's leading? What do we do next? Because we lack that strategy. And so what happens in the, at this point is it just starts to unravel because there is no leader. There's been no handoff. The, the carrier, the Joshua who had the baton solidly in his hand. So they were to go in. The plan all along was to go into the promised land and, and clear it all out because God did not want them to get entangled with the religions of the world and have their hearts taken away. So you, you got to clear them, drive them all away. So watch in verse 28 of Judges chapter 1. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites, their enemies, into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Whoops. Because there was no leader saying, come on, this is the plan. Now I'm going to zip through ch chapter 1, but just watch this. Now they're going to, he's going to name the different tribes of Israel here. If, you, if you're not, not familiar with the, these names of the tribes, the, the different segments of the nation of Israel. It's how they divided themselves. In verse 27, Manasseh, tribe of Israel, did not drive out their enemies, the people of Bethshan. Verse 29, nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gazar. In verse 30, neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Katron. In verse 31, nor did Asher drive out those living in Akko. In verse 33, neither did Naphtali drive out those in Beth Shemesh. It got worse for the Danites. In verse 34, the Amorites, the enemies, confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down from the plain. Verse 35, and the Amorites, the enemies of God, were determined also to hold out from the Mount Harris, Agilon, and Shabalan. In other words, man, they, they blew the entire mission. The drop of the baton affected and disqualified the entire team. Later on, we're going to see a clip of the 1996 Olympic 4 by one relay race, which the U.S. Was, were highly favored. That team was highly favored, but the Canadians won it. They did an, an incredible job, but the U.S. was disqualified because, are you ready? The handoff. And the whole team, it affected the whole team. You see, Joshua... Failing to pick up an, an aide, an assistant, an apprentice, a disciple, affected the whole team. It got worse. It went from bad to really badder. Joshua, Judges chapter 2, just one simple chapter away. The God's people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. And of the elders who outlived him and who had seen great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. In verse 10, after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done in Israel. It should make you cry. In verse 11, then the Israelites even went from bad to badder to baddest. Then the Israelites did evil in the Lord's in the eyes of the Lord and serve the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and they worshiped various gods around them. This morning, I got a text from your friend and mine, Clay Barnett. And he said, I've got some cool stuff to catch you up on.
He's the, the one, in case you didn't know him, he was in Czech Republic right now. The trip was amazing. And just the connections that we've made. Prague 13, that's the church there that our missionary Rob is in, Audrey. Prague 13 has capital letters. Incredible young leaders that I want to invest in more intentionally. Carl Henry said these words, success without a successor is failure. Joshua was quite successful in his time, but he didn't have a successor. So let me end today by giving you perhaps a few things that may help you to engage this identity. The first thing I would say is that we need to redefine maturity in the Christian culture. In an age that values information, you can Google and wiki and and do all those things. Information somehow has become a premium. And those who have more information, if I know a lot more about the Bible and the Christian culture, somehow I got got a leg up. Information is good. Studying is good. I'll say it again. But it is not the premium mark of maturity. The premium mark of maturity is multiplication. Watch this. Philippians chapter 3, verse 14. Paul said, I press on to the goal, toward the goal, to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Let me stop right there. Anytime Christ talked about the prize and being those being rewarded, it was always those who had multiplied. So when he says, I press toward the goal, that means as we stand before Christ, how many batons did I, did I lay in? How many, how many, how much investment did I make? How much did I practice the handoff? And he said, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. See, it's a, it's a different idea of what maturity is. I say if we redefine that in the Christian culture, we would, we would set our goals on something else. You know what I mean? Jim Putman wrote a great book called Discipleship. And Shift. Uh, it sounds like Discipleship, but it's Discipleship. And in this book, in my opinion, it is the best book on discipleship um, uh, that is out there. And he says, I know many Christians who have the ability to be spiritual parents, but don't make it a priority. Though they would like to call themselves mature, I would say that they're not. Why? Because they have not prioritized their lives around the mission of Christ, which is to make disciples. I couldn't say it any better. Redefine what mature looks like. Here's another redefinition. Redefine your mark. What I mean by that is it's not the finish line. Your mark, in fact, back to Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, I press on toward the goal. It's redefining the goal. You see, the guy that runs the first leg of the race, he's not even thinking, he or she, he's not even thinking about that finish line. It's all about, ah, to the next guy. And they've practiced and they've practiced. His total goal is right there. It's not all the way around the finish line. It's right there at the handoff. Redefine what the goal is. We're, we probably won't make it. We may not be the church that gets taken into heaven. We may not be. We may or we may not. But I'm acting as if, man, I got a job to do while I'm here. Sometimes people want to ask me deep theological questions. You know, who were the Nephilim? Who were the people in Genesis 6? Who were the chicks in Genesis 6? <laughs> that nothing there's coming up. Who are, and, and they're great questions, you know, how, why were, how, how, you know, the certain number of fish, what was it, 154? Why was it 154? Why was it, okay, blah, 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 blah. hey, I'll be back. I'm running! <laughs> you know what I mean? We can easily miss the goal of what we're, we're, we're doing. Hebrews chapter 11, 39 talks about all those Olympians in that chapter, and at the end it says, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what they had been promised in this lifetime. None of them crossed over the borderline. So I want to show you this clip from the 1996 Olympics. And I'm going to use my, my handy pointer here because there's so many runners. I want, to, I, want you to, I want to point out the running team, the Canadian team. There's four runners, right? It's four by one. 
And I'm going to point to the third runner. And I want you to, I want you to watch what he celebrates. He is celebrating before the finish line. He's celebrating the handoff. Because that's the thing they've practiced so hard on. He was celebrating when that baton was passed successfully. Watch this. Canada in lane six. The United States in lane four. And they're off. And it's up to Robert Esme to run the bend and make the clean exchange to Glenroy Gilbert. And he came flying out of the box. He did last off. There goes Gilbert down the back straight. Gilbert is in a battle with Tim Hart. And now the third exchange. Marsh and Bruni Surin. Watch this guy right here. Three times. Right here. Hand off. Celebrate. Now watch what he does. Go. Go. Oh. Now watch what happens. You see, it's a team effort. You are going to celebrate in heaven like these young men with those who are in your track. Now watch this. Because it is a transcendent cause. It is not about them. He was celebrating even before he crossed the line. Okay, I'll be honest with you. I watched it 25 times yesterday and cried every time. <laughs> that, that moment of the handoff. And then he's saying, the third runner is saying to the fourth runner, go, go, go. Which leads me to our last point that I truly hope will activate your identity. The baton that weighs heavily in our hands our motivation is not only the runner who is in front of us, but the runners who have paid the price behind us. The weight is counterbalanced between the front and the back. Philippians chapter 3 says, but I, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind me, not who is behind me. Straining toward what is head ahead. Hebrews chapter 11 verse chapter 12 and verse 1 since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of carriers those who came before us since we are surrounded by them they came before us let us run with perseverance the race our leg which is marked out for us now You've probably wondered why this table is sitting here today. Every two or three years, I do this illustration. And this, each of these blocks represents a carrier in time. Let's say we began with Adam. And if you can't sing in the, in the back, feel free to stand. This represents Adam. Perhaps this is Noah, somebody that pulled, towed the weight, who came before us. Maybe this is Abraham. Maybe this is Jacob. Maybe this is um, uh, Isaac, Moses, right down the line. Gideon, David, Isaiah, right down the line. Maybe these lives. Maybe this is Billy Sunday. Maybe this is Whitfield. Maybe this is Billy Graham. And somewhere in the line, we fall in this long, privileged line of Olympians. I painted this one red because it, I wanted to dis distinguish us so you can see it. First time I did this illustration was about eight years ago. And for eight years, this piece of red block has sat on my desk to remind me that my leg of the race is temporary and that there is a baton that weighs heavily in my hands. When I came to Christ, it was through an, a pastor from India. His name, C.M. Titus. We called him Titus. I moved to another city. There was a 70-year-old lady, Helene Royster. She poured into me. 
She poured Oswald Chambers into me until it flowed out my ears. I moved to another city. Alan Shelby poured into me. Every place I've been, there has been that runner who is behind me saying, Run, Steve! Run, Steve! And so my this doesn't only include the Billy Grahams and the Billy Sundays and the Adams and the Moseses, but this for me is the tightest and the Helene Roysters and the Alan Shelbys of my life. And it represents the responsibility, not of those who have just come before me, but those who are going to come after me and you. And we have a responsibility to keep the race going. And so when the race begins, I'm going to ask for a volunteer. Chris, come on up. When the race begins, he gets the fun part and starts the race. You feel the momentum coming. But what happens if I say no to them? This is what, this is the Joshua problem. You are a carrier. You owe it to them, and you owe it to them. To strategize, not randomize. To strategize with great intentionality of that man or woman who is in your lane in front of you. Would you pray with me? Father, we're more than grateful, God. For the baton that rests squarely in our hands. It is worn from many years of being carried. It has blood on it. It has sweat. It has tears. It has humility ingrained in its fiber. It has selflessness. It has grit. It has perseverance. It has honor. It has excellence. The baton that is squarely in our hands, God, is not nameless. It has the names of the greats, but it is engraved with the personal names of those who have, in our own lifetime, put it into our hands. God, may we honor them. May we honor the ones who have come before us to sprint selflessly, not God toward the finish line, but selflessly to an awaiting runner, an awaiting carrier, God. Help us to redefine what maturity looks like. Help us to redefine what the mark is, what the goal is, God. If we look up and there's no one in our lane waiting for us, God, recalibrate our identity today. Help us to be more strategic, more intentional, more purposeful, more detailed. We owe it to you if the business world does it every day in our life, of their lives, God, in their existence and their operations. Shouldn't we with the kingdom of God at hand, God? Oh, please. Recalibrate your people. Help us not only to fill the honor of the baton in our hand that has been given to us, God, but help us to feel the heavy weight of responsibility for those who come after us. Oh, let us not be reckless. Oh, let us not be selfish. Oh, let us not, God, be apathetic. And God, help us not to be random. We close our time, God, with just, with thanksgiving for the deep privilege of even having people like us even having the baton in the first place. And we do because of what Christ has done to make us even a candidate to be running in this race. So we're grateful for Christ today. 
grateful for not only changing our heart, changing our destination, God, but for changing our shoes. And now we have running shoes on. May we do it with honor for transcendent purposes. In the name of Christ.